This morning, we're going to continue in our series, and it's simply called Truth with an exclamation mark. And the idea is that in our generation, we are living in a time right now in which truth has fallen in the streets. That's, what, that's how Isaiah declared it. Truth has fallen in the streets. And when that happens, there, is, there are just uh, implications throughout a culture, and the church, the people of God, at that point must rise up with truth in order to change the direction. Otherwise, God always brings judgment upon any nation that throws truth out the window. And in church, that's where we're at today. All right, let me just quickly pray. Spirit of God, would you speak to our hearts today? Give us ears to hear and hearts to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I can remember, well, this is like a long time ago when I was in college, University of Delaware, that's where I met my wife, and I had a roommate one year. Now, I had planned this, that I was going to spend that year on campus. It was actually just a semester, and uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship had what they called uh, adopted dorm, and so I signed up for it. I wanted to just live in a dorm and be able to impact the people in that dorm, and especially my roommate. Now, my roommate was a guy who was just a year younger than me, and I, I would notice that on the weekends, he would go out and we would party, he would get drunk, and he would just he, he would just be out of his senses. And my heart broke for him, and I was praying for him, and he and I began a discussion, and I realized that he was uh, adhering to a religion called Christian science. Some of you are aware of what Christian science is, but basically, um, they look at the Bible very, very differently than you and I would. They would say that sin is not a reality, that the real problem is that we believe sin is a reality. They deny, therefore, the need or the necessity for the cross and the resurrection. They deny that Jesus is God, and therefore, what he did on the cross doesn't secure for us salvation, forgiveness of sins. And so, I'm, I'm having an opportunity, and I'm, I'm talking with him, and, you know, where are you at? And, and cause I just, I realized he comes back so many evenings and he's drunk or he's, um, he's lost. And there's a point in our conversation in which he gets very seriously and he, he's moved. Emotionally, he's moved and he cries. And the Spirit of God is really tugging at his heart. And I ask him, Rob, are you willing right now? To ask Jesus into your life. Scripture says receive him, to believe in him, and he will give you the right to become a child of God, and, and you can be born again right now. And he looked up at me, and there was such conflict in his soul. And he paused. It was like he couldn't speak. And he said, not right now. He went away for the weekend. He got with one of the teachers in his Christian science church building, whatever they call it. And he came back the following Monday, and I said, so Rob, yeah, I, you've had the weekend to, to think about it. And I, I commend you for that. The, Jesus said, count the cost of being a disciple. This is a major step for you. And he said, but Mike, uh, I talked with someone in my church, and they told me not to talk to you anymore, and that I'm going to choose to believe what I believe. And that's just it. And my heart broke for Rob. He was digging his heels in the ground. He was listening to lies that he had just been uh, recited to over and over. And my heart broke for him. Uh, I eventually moved off campus. Saw no change in Rob. The following semester, 
um, I usually, as a practice, would go to a, a particular building for those who were uh, commuting. I was a commuter, and I, I would just sit down, eat lunch with someone, and try and evangelize. Well, this particular day, I decided, you know, I'm going to go into one of the uh, University of Delaware cafeterias, and as and I did that, got my plate, and as I went to sit down, I saw Rob. And so I said, hey, Rob, can I sit with you? I sat next to him. Of course, I waited for him to say yes or no, okay? And so I sat down next to him, and I just, yeah, how are you doing? How are classes going? And in the course of the conversation, I asked him, so Rob, have you been thinking about anything that I've shared with you? And where are you at just in your thoughts about who Jesus is and what the Bible says about him? That we must believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. And he said to me, he said, you know what, Mike? I'm just, I'm, I'm really not interested. And I want you to know, here is how I felt at that moment. I felt like as I was walking along a street, I saw my neighbor's house on fire. And I have a decision to make. Do I just say, you know what, that's his fire. That's his problem. Uh, I'm sure he knows that his house is on fire. I'm sure he's already called the fire department. He's going to be fine, even though the roof is just, you know, shooting flames up in the air. Is that what I do? So for me, generally, I think I would probably go knock on the door. And if no one's ask, answering at the door, open the door, call in, look for somebody and pull them out. I want to rescue them. And that's how I felt as I'm talking with Rob. And I wanted to rescue him. And I, and I pressed him. I said, Rob, please understand that the Bible is true. And, it's, and we went through these scripture verses. And I, I shared a few more with him. And, and he, he just dug his heels on the ground. And he said, Mike, I'm not, I don't want to anymore. And I said, please, Rob. Person across from the table. And cause of course, he was sitting there with his friends. And, his, and this person said to me, hey, I don't know who you are. But Rob doesn't want any of that. Rob has his own religion, and you just need to leave him alone. And if you think that you're right and he's wrong, you're just arrogant. And they laid into me. And so I turned to Rob and I said, Rob, do you want to talk about this anymore? And Rob looked up at me, and I could see the conflict in his eyes. He knew that he was about to make a decision to open the door more or close it and lock it. And he looked up at me and looked at his friend. And he said, no, I don't want to talk about it anymore. And I said, okay. And my heart broke for Rob. I have no idea where Rob is today. I don't know what he believes. But I know this. That if Rob refused to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as his only hope for reconciliation with the God that he is offended by his sin, and that each of us have as well, there is no hope for him. He cannot continue to believe in his Christian science teaching that denies the reality of sin and therefore denies any offense that God has with our sin and the need for the cross and the resurrection because apparently we are not dead in our sins as scripture so clearly teaches. And Rob, even though I love him so much, even though his house was on fire, he rejected the truth, and Scripture makes it clear that when we reject truth and we never look to Jesus, we remain under the wrath of God. And one day, we will not be spending eternity in heaven, but into an eternal fire of punishment 
that Jesus himself called out. This is a sobering truth. And in our day, we have, just like this girl tried to point out, we live in an age of religious pluralism. Religious, plural, religious pluralism basically believes that moral and religious truth are merely opinions. There, there is no absolute truth. So instead, you have relative truth or a personal truth. See, Rob, according to this lady, and, and what's very prevalent in our culture, Rob had a personal truth. Who is I to say, you're wrong and I'm right? And so as a result... We, are, we have a generation that cannot recognize truth because truth comes in all different types of flavors. See, who is to say that vanilla ice cream is better than chocolate ice cream or even strawberry ice cream? How many of you are vanilla ice cream lovers as opposed to chocolate? How many of you would say, nope, I'm chocolate? How many of you don't even care? Okay, you're, you're not an ice cream connoisseur. I'm sorry. I love ice cream. My favorite ice cream is Rocky Road, just so you know that. Okay. But, see, you can't be right or wrong about which flavor is the best because that's an opinion. And that's how people view religion. It's just an opinion. Different religions are like different flavors. And as a result, this idea of truth has been changed. The second thing is that these truths are relative and they are not absolute. The third thing is that everyone interprets the Bible differently. And so as a result, who am I? If I'm going to talk to Rob, okay, Rob, well, that's the way you view it and that's okay. You know what? Step outside of religious truth and apply that to any other definition of truth in the realm of, let's say, mathematics. I'm sorry, Johnny, you say 2 plus 2 equals 5. That's your personal truth. That's okay. And they, they mark it right. How many of you ever had a teacher like that in school? Not a one of you. When you said 2 plus 2 equals 5, you got a big red X on it, minus 1. That's just the way it is, because truth is not relative, either in science or mathematics or anywhere else, morals or religion. Truth is truth. It's, it's not ambiguous. It's either right or wrong. Now I'm going to come back to this truth. I want to ask a question, though, as we launch now, turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 34. Is there any body of truth, any body of truth that we can be certain about? Are all religions on the same footing? Is one right and the other wrong? And is it arrogant to believe otherwise? We're going to look at the life of a man by the name of Manasseh. And he made a choice about truth that wreaked havoc in his kingdom and in his own personal life. In 2 Chronicles 34, excuse me, I, I, I said that last week too, in, in Wednesday night. Yeah, turn to Corinthians, no, Chronicles they both start with C. Give me a break, right? Second Chronicles chapter 34. Now, don't let this throw you. I'm going to look at just a few verses in the reign of, uh, excuse me, Josiah, and then I'm going to backpedal a little bit so that we're going to focus on, because we're going to ask a question right after I read these verses. 
Josiah died in 609 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar ransacked Jerusalem in 605 B.C., just four years later after Josiah reigned. Josiah was a very godly man. We'll find that out and why he was even considered that. But in 2 Chronicles um, 34, 14 and 15, they are doing work in repairing the temple. And it says while they were bringing out the money they had taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan. Let's skip down to verse, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 18. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king. So this is King Josiah. Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the Lord, he tore his robe. Interesting. The book of the law of the Lord was found in the temple. That means that it had been lost. This, it, it wasn't just a copy of the book of the law of Moses. Some suggest it's just the book of Deuteronomy. I would suggest it has to include portions of Leviticus, just in keeping with uh, the, the idea of God bringing judgment, um, and as if the people didn't know. I believe it was the entire book of the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, but somehow it had gotten lost and was never missed. They found it accidentally. They didn't go on a scavenger hunt like we did a couple weeks ago or last week, a couple weeks ago, and, and trying to find the book. Of, hey, let's, let's look for the book of the law of Moses, guys. We just can't find it. I think I've misplaced it. No, they didn't even know about it. Wow, how does that happen? Maybe even a, a better question, how long had it been missing? Because an entire generation, like Shaphan, he just said, oh, Hilkiah found, what did he say? Hilkiah found a book. Come on, Shaphan, a book? No, this is the law of the Lord given to Moses. Wow, a book? What happened? How did the book of the law get lost so that when it was found, many did not even recognize it? I want you to turn a couple of pages to your left. We just, we, we're going to go back <coughs> three generations. You remember King Hezekiah. He was a good king. But Hezekiah had an issue with pride that though he repented of it, it still was a stumbling block for him. And it says in Second in Chronicles, don't turn to Corinthians, please, even if I say it. Second Chronicles 32, verse 25, he says that his heart was proud and he did not respond to the kindness shown him. Therefore, the Lord's wrath was on him on Judah and Jerusalem. And then Hezekiah repented of his pride. So he does repent. But number two, we see just in verse 27, Helkiah had very great riches. And honor. He was very wealthy. And in number in verse 30, it says, It was Hezekiah who blocked the upper 
outlet of the Gihon Spring and channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David. And they have discovered this channel, by the way. And it, it, I think it was over 1,200 feet long. And it's all bore, uh, bored out in solid rock. And it goes all the way down to the Gihon River, okay, in the Kidron Valley. Um, and there was a way then for them to cover that opening and bring water up from the river into the city. And consequently, when they would be besieged, they would still be able to have water. Very cool concept. But then it goes on and it says that he succeeded in everything he undertook. But when envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask him about the miraculous sign that had occurred, remember he was sick, this, the, um, the shadow went back ten steps, and it says here, it says they, they went to ask him about the miraculous sign that occurred in the land. God left him to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. And what Hezekiah did was, I'm sure he shared that testimony of what God did, but then proceeded to show him all his great wealth. There was still something wrong in Hezekiah's heart. Now here's why I'm bringing this up. His son, Hezekiah dies, his son Manasseh is 12 years old when he ascends the throne. Manasseh reigns for 55 years. I'm going to read the next chapter to you, at least most of it. And we're going to get a picture into Manasseh's heart. And the question that we're going to, that's going to come immediately to your mind is, how could such a godly king like, Man like Hezekiah have a son that was considered the most wicked king to ever reign in Judah? How did that happen? And I'm going to suggest that the baton of truth, as it was being passed to, him, to Manasseh, was dropped. Have you ever have you ever watched in the Olympics as you have like the favored team or one of the best teams, amazing sprinters, and they're sure to win, but because of one dropped pass or fumbled pass, they lose. They don't even medal. I've seen that. I, I grew up. My dad was a track coach, and they worked on their passes constantly because just one bobbled pass. That's all it takes. Hezekiah bobbled the baton. What happened? Let's, let's look at ver chapter 33, verse 1. Manasseh, as I said, was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the detestable practices of the nations, the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. We're talking hundreds of years ago. Remember when Joshua was taking the land. <laughs> He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made a poles. He bowed down to the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. By the way, Ben-Hinnom became an epitaph for hell, Gehenna. Because that was their garbage dump where they would constantly burn the garbage. He sacrificed his sons 
in the fire in their garbage dump. Practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved image he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again, <clears throat> excuse me, I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to their forefathers, if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees, and ordinances given through Moses. But my friends, what happens if you don't have that law? What happens if you discard it? What happens if you hide it and get rid of it? But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Israel astray so that they did more evil, more evil, than all the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the armies, commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Not to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, but he took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Afterwards, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David west of the Gihon Spring in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Ophel. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord as well as all the stars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Notice that it doesn't say that he burned them. Not going to chastise Manasseh in this, but unfortunately what happened is that his son Amon, who reigned only two years, when he ascended the throne, he took all those images and he put them back in their place. Everywhere. Everywhere. But he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord. Remember other altars to the starry host had been set up in the temple, uh, excuse me, the temple courts, and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord, their God, which, by the way, is exactly what Jeroboam did. And he erected an idol in Bethel in the south and in Dan in the north, and he had them worship Yahweh at those temples. But God had said, do not do that. If you're aware of the idol that the, the children of Israel created while Moses was on Mount Sinai, they had every intention to worship the Lord with that idol. But how did God respond? He said, you have sinned greatly. And he brought judgment. 
So this is a compromise that the people made. So Amon comes on the scene two years, only two years. Then he gets assassinated, and he reinstalls all of these idols. Josiah comes. Josiah, the next chapter, Josiah was on 34. He's only eight years old. And at age 26, he begins a, a, a revamping of Jerusalem and the temple. And that's when they discover the law of the Lord given to Moses. And Josiah gets rid of, pulverizes, grinds to powder the idols, burns whatever can be burned. And he does it not just in Jerusalem, but all of Judea and as much as he possibly can in the northern kingdom, even though those people had no king. They had already been taken away by the king of Assyria. But he brought revival and he called the people, Josiah called the people to repentance, but it was based on the truth of the law of Moses, the law of God. And I'm going to tell you this, that whenever a generation has before them a choice I am either going to serve the Lord and embrace truth or I am going to serve all in all of these other religions and they choose the latter, they will always take the truth and discard it. They have to hide it. They have to bury it. They have to chastise it. They have to speak against it. They have to do whatever they can so that people don't listen to the truth. Because just the truth makes sense. The truth calls us to repentance. The truth points us in the right direction. All other religions lead us astray. All other philosophies will take us down the wrong path. This is what Manasseh did. This is how he had so much influence on the people. He discarded the truth. So for somewhere around 55 years, the law of Moses had not been read. It had been tucked away in hiding, lost, until when Josiah, 26 years of age, had said, hey guys, Levites, priests, let's get the temple repaired. Let's get all of these altars and idols out of the temple, out of the courts, and let's purify it. And he was passionate about this. And it says, no one served the Lord like he did since David, not even his grandfather Hezekiah or great-grandfather, Hezekiah. Wow. Josiah was the most righteous king since David. That's a testament to Josiah. But Manasseh, listen to this. Manasseh embraced religious pluralism. Manasseh worshipped Baal and Asherah. That was the Canaanite pantheon. He embraced astrology. He even dabbled in the occult, in witchcraft and divination, mediums, spiritists. Just like King Saul had begun to do, and God called him to account and took his life. See, this is serious. When you get into the occult, this is serious. You open yourself, not just to sin, but to an entire demonic, unseen spirit world. And this is exactly what he did, to the point where he sacrificed his sons. I'm kind of wondering, well, what about his daughters, you know? But anyway, he sacrificed his sons to these gods. 
That's what the Moabites would do, the Ammonites. They, would, they, would, they had a guy called Chemish, and they would sacrifice. And he's embracing all of these religions as if to say, hey, I mean, there, there's got to be, you know, it, hopefully I'm, I'm worshiping the right God as I'm worshiping like a dozen different gods. Hopefully one of them is the right one, and I'll curry favor with that God. And, and you get this feeling in this religious pluralism that maybe if I touch all the bases, I'll be good. But to do that, he had to reject the one true truth found in the Word of God. He turned to all other religions but the right one. And that's why he felt so comfortable embracing all those different gods. In verse 10 of, of chapter 30, yeah, chapter 33, it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people but they paid no attention. The Lord spoke to him through the prophets, through prophetesses. How sad that Manasseh closed his ears and even had them put to death and the, all the people paid no attention. You don't have to turn here, but I'm going to read to you from 2 Kings. 2 Kings shares this very same story, just from a little bit different perspective, and it actually includes one of the prophetic words that the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets. Starting with verse 11. It says, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. This is what the Lord's prophesying through this prophet. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria. God judged Samaria. And the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. Ahab was a king of Samaria. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one who wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. We're talking the exile here, guys. They will be looted and plundered by all their foes because they have done evil in my eyes and have provoked me to anger from the day their forefathers came out of Egypt until this day. God tolerated their sin to a degree. He extended mercy, but only to a point. And there was no other remedy for their rebellion except redemptive judgment. As a result of Manasseh's sin, God spoke and brought it to pass in 605 B.C. I'm going to take all of Judah and Jerusalem and I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to take so many of you captive to another land. And they were there for 70 years before they came back in God's mercy. Manasseh's problem was that his heart was rebellious. And he believed that all religions in some way contained truth, and so he pursued all of them. So I want to ask a question. Why is religious pluralism so bad? Because of how it views truth. Guys, if, if we sweep truth under the carpet, if we call it by another name, if we disguise it, if we get rid of it, if, if, if we come to what we declare is truth, but is contradictory what is truly truth, and we embrace these lies, 
It impacts who you are, your eternal destiny, how you even live in this life. It, it undermines everything that God has planned for us. That is what our generation is going through right now and how it's dealing with truth. So I, I'm gonna, I want to share something with you. I'm going to call it the truth about truth. The truth about truth. And I'm going to go through these relatively quickly. You can write them. Whoa. You can write them down. Okay. A little crooked, but please don't be offended. Anyway. Let, let's start with number one. Truth. Truths are facts. They are not opinions. We don't weigh in on truth as if it's something to be judged. Truth is whether you believe it or not. Truth is truth and are never opinions. Number two, truth is discovered. It's not invented. Guess what, guys? The law of gravity existed before Newton. He did not invent the law of gravity. He did not come up with it. It had always been since the creation of the world. Truth, therefore, never changes. We're going to get to that, but truth existed before it was discovered. And that's, that's the case with every truth. Truth is, regardless. Truth cannot be contradict. Truth cannot contradict truth. This is commonly called in logic the law of non-contradiction. If truth could contradict itself, then there is no such thing as truth. Let me say that again. If truth can contradict itself, if this truth states this, and this truth states something completely opposite, that is that violates the law of non-contradiction. And if we're going to say that that's okay, we have completely undermined what truth even is. Truth cannot contradict itself. Two plus two equals four, but two plus seven cannot equal four, ever. Both cannot be true. One is right, and one church is wrong. In our day, people are looking at moral and religious truth, and they say, well, they're both right. Both of those truths are right. Number four, truth is transcultural. Guess what? Two plus two equals four is true in America as well as in Europe. A culture's beliefs cannot change truth. Let me say that. And it, let, let me explain that. My belief about truth can be either right or wrong. It can, be, it can express my opinion. But hopefully, I will look at that truth and I will come to a right conclusion. All right? In our day, it is very popular to say, but that's just your perspective. Or that's just the way you interpret it. Does that mean, then, that we can never arrive at truth? Because it's always going to be what we believe. It's always going to be our interpretation of truth. Let me ask you this. How would you feel, and you, any of you English majors, this is going to get your, make your hair stand up on end. When I was in middle school, I had my, my class read through Romeo and Juliet. And I had heard this line quoted, and it's a very famous one, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? And she's standing in her balcony, 
And Romeo is down at the, the base of that balcony. And you remember the feud that's going on between those two houses, right? And he's from one house, she's from the other, and it's like, wow, we are what they call star-crossed lovers. We, we, what do we do now? And she says, wherefore art thou Romeo? And I used to think, why is she asking the question where Romeo is? If I were to try and present a case to an English major, I really think Juliet's blind. She's asking where Romeo is, and he's right there. I really, the whole problem with Juliet is that she's blind. Romeo is probably some ugly dude, right? That's why she ended up falling in love with him, because he's so ugly, but she couldn't tell. So he's totally blind. And I can build my case because he asked, where are you? And he's right there. And they would look at me and in truth say, Mike, you misunderstand. And I would say, no, that's just my interpretation. My interpretation is true. Now, you may have your own personal truth about that statement, but that's your personal truth. Guess what, guys? There's only one truth. I had just misunderstood what the word wherefore meant. I thought, thought that wherefore meant where, and it means why. Now, if you didn't know that, you would probably be ignorant like I was, but that day I got a little enlightened. She's asking, why are you Romeo? Because you're from a clan or a house that is completely that's feuding with my, we, we can never get married. Our parents will never allow it. Well, of course, you know the tragedy that happens at the end, blah, blah, blah. But there's a truth about what that means. And if I were to sit before Shakespeare and try and convince him what you really meant was, what, where, where is Romeo? He would look at me and say, ah, I need to educate you. Well, that, you know what, Shakespeare, see, that's my personal view. That's my take on it. That's what I think, and therefore that's what's true. And he would look at you and say, no, there's only one, listen to this, there's only one interpretation that I meant by that. I think our culture needs to hear that. I think our culture needs to realize there is only one truth. And that truth does not contradict itself. It is transcultural, regardless of a culture's belief. Truth does not change. It is. Number five, truth is unchanging. And therefore, the beliefs about truth can change, but those beliefs never change truth. Number six, beliefs cannot change a fact very similar to the, what I just stated. Sincer Sincerity, by the way, does not make a belief correct. I don't care how sincere I am about interpreting Juliet's work question. I'm wrong. Truth, number seven, is not affected by attitude. And if I claim to be a Christian, and I even share Christianity, if, my, if I am living a hypocritical life, that does not change the truth. My brother Rob, when he was a young teenager, shared the gospel with a friend of ours, Bob Simmons, and Bob Simmons got saved. But my brother Rob was living a life of sin, and he did not truly know Jesus. But his hypocrisy did not change the truth. And my friend Bob got saved. Now, more than 15 years later, my brother Rob got saved, praise God. But his hypocrisy didn't change the truth. Attitudes can't. Truth is truth. Number eight, all truths are absolute 
truths. There's no such thing as relative truth. All truths are absolute. There are no absolute, excuse me, there are no absolute truths. That statement, there are no absolute truths, is self-defeating. It's contradictory. See, if I'm saying there's no absolute truths, you ask the person and say, are you absolutely sure about that? Because they're stating it like it's an absolute truth. But their statement is that there's no absolute truth. So you would look at them and say, so that's your guess, right? Ask them what they think about the Holocaust. Because all of Germany bought into the lie. Well, just about all of Germany bought into the lie. And that was that Jews were not fully human. And therefore, killing six million of them was morally okay justifiable they cost us world war one that's what they were told that's what they were they right you'd ask anyone when you're talking about truth whether it's moral relative or not whether they're absolute truth or not if they disagree with absolute truth ask them so what is your what is your opinion and if you believe that the holocaust was wrong would you have been willing to fight against hitler and they will undoubtedly say, yes, he's trying to extend the, 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 the Third Reich or establish the Third Reich, take over the world, perhaps. We, I needed to stop him because it's not going to stop at the Jews. He's probably going to come after me, so I would fight him. Boy, it sounds like he's pretty passionate about what he thinks is truth. And he would go so far as to say Hitler is wrong. Well, let's take that idea and let's have it bear on what is truth. Not just scientifically or, pol or politically or how about morally and with regard to religion. Lastly, all truth is exclusive by nature. See, that's a tough one for our generation because they want all truth to be inclusive. If I were to have a ball in my hand and it was red, I could make this truth statement, this ball is red. And because it is red... It excludes the possibility of it being yellow or blue. It just is not. Someone would not be able to walk up to me who is colorblind and look at red, and those who are colorblind, they generally view red as what color? Green. Okay. They would say, well, Mike, you're wrong. It's, it's green. Well, that's their mistaken, wrong perspective. There is a truth. And it's not an opinion. The ball is red. We need to realize that truth is exclusive. I, I was reading online and I came across a writing from someone who's a Buddhist. This is what he said. Buddha's teachings are not contradictory to what Jesus taught. They have a different environment, different time, and followers with different mindsets. So they use different ways of teaching, but their message is the same. Is this true? Is this true? Let's start with this. Buddhism is atheistic. They don't believe there's a God. They believe in a non-personal force, like in Star Wars. By the way, um, who, I'm sorry, who was the... George Lucas, thank you. George Lucas is a Buddhist. And, and he... He wanted to create this force to include all religions, but really he was just talking about Buddhism or Taoism at best. And the truth is it's absolutely 
does not even resemble Christianity at all. The force is impersonal. It is a power. It is not a personal God. Buddhism is atheistic. Buddhism says get rid of sin and you enter nirvana. Scripture says, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus himself, that whoever believes in him will not perish, go to hell, but have everlasting life. He then says, later, a couple, about 11 chapters later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So when Hinduism says that Jesus is simply the, the 33rd incarnation of Vishnu, see, he's wrong. Because Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only one in all of history who died for the sins of the world because he was falsely accused, but also because of the Father's plan, and then rose from the dead bodily. The only one ever. Buddha is still in his tomb. Muhammad is still in his tomb. Even though the Quran says Jesus is a good guy, but follow my prophet Muhammad, Jesus says, no, 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 no. I died on a cross. Islam rejects that. Jesus didn't die on a cross. He Barabbas took his place. In, in, in Islam, uh, in Christianity, of course, Jesus is the hero, but in Islam, um, Judas Iscariot is the hero. He's the one who betrayed and that's considered noble. And so consequently, you cannot say Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, they're all the same. They are poles apart. Truth is exclusive. All other religions believe man is basically good and can do enough good to save himself. Christianity says he is not, he is dead in his sins, and God must raise him from the dead when he believes. You've probably heard this illustration before. <coughs> Excuse me. There's an elephant in a room and six blind men come into the room and each of them grab a different part of the elephant. One grabs his tail and he says, this is a rope. Another grabs his ears and he says, this is a fan. Another touches his side and said, nope, this is a wall. Another takes his leg and he says, my goodness, this is a tree. Another grabs his tusk and says, nope, this is a spear. Another grabs his uh, trunk and he says, guys, this is a snake. Here's my question. Which one is right? Are they all right? No. Let me make a few observations. Number one, all of them, all six men are blind. They can't see the truth. They feel it, but that's it. Let's just start off understanding this illustration that's commonly used by religious pluralists. All six men are blind. All six men are wrong. And number three, guys, there is a truth. Regardless of what they say, it is the elephant that's in the room. The elephant in the room today is that there is a truth. Man, excuse, yes, Manasseh rejected that truth 
And he lived a life that was destroying him and his people, and God brought judgment. Now, praise God. Hezekiah, excuse me, Manasseh repented. Manasseh repented. Manasseh said, eventually, I, I have been erring. I was wrong. I wasn't right. I was wrong in embracing all of these religions and rejecting the truth. Now, I don't know if he thought about the law of the Lord and thinking, well, where did we misplace that book? Where did we hide it, guys? So I'm not going to say Manasseh's repentance was not genuine. I do believe it was. And as far as why he was taken to Babylon, it was probably, I'm not going to get into this, but that's an indication that it happened about five years before he died. So he reigned around 50 years, living in total sin, leading all of Judah astray, and then he repented. And he tried to bring repentance to his nation, but it didn't work. So his son, Amon, he came along, took all of those idols, <clears throat> thrown into the Valley of Hinnom, and reinstituted them. Josiah comes along, 26 years of age, and he is seeking to bring about <clears throat> a revival because they found the truth. And here is how he responds. Chapter 34, verse 18, 19, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then it says, in verse 27, this is the prophet, because they want to know, what do we do now? Because the Bible says that if you continue in this sin, Deuteronomy 28, another chapter in Leviticus, that if Israel does this, I will, I will send plagues, I'll send the sword, I'll send famine, all of these judgments, and eventually, if they still do not repent, I will take them away to another country and leave them there. I will reject them. So when Josiah hears this, he's wondering, what do we do now? So he goes to a prophetess. This is what she says. Verse 27. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God, when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people, because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence. She says, I'll gather you to your fathers and you'll be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place and on those who live here. Josiah died. And four years later, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and took thousands, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to Babylon. It was too late. I am praying that our generation, for our generation, it is not too late. It has discarded truth or is trying so hard to attack it and undermine it so that even Christians are saying, well, that's just your interpretation. You know, some believe Jesus was God and some don't. So, you know, okay. The Bible does say that he was a man. Yeah, but it also says, see, he was God. And so we are in a day in which even those who claim to be Christians, we call it liberalism or progressive Christianity, the emergent church has promoted this bad theology. Not everybody believes it, but they're embracing a gospel that is not the gospel of, at all, a Jesus that is not the Jesus in the Bible at all, and they are so content. And our challenge, church, 
is God is looking for a church that went, listen, when it hears truth, there is such a longing for that truth. There is such a fear of God, such a passion to follow him. And when we hear the truth and God says that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. Then will I forgive their sins. And then will I heal their land. But if they don't, God says, I will bring judgment. I have to. I refuse to allow the devil to bring my people to hell with them. I will rescue them and I will purge my church and I will bring the discipline necessary. And I'm just praying, God, that we live in a generation that has abandoned truth. May we not go so far as to completely reject it and bear your judgment. I believe that if we stand like Josiah did and we speak against the lies and we speak clearly and we speak boldly, not all of us are going to have the platform that King Josiah did, but the platform he gives you, speak truth. Let the word of God tear your heart. As it says here, Josiah, that his heart was responsive, he humbled himself and he wept in my presence. My fear is when the church stops weeping. When the church starts grieving over what it sees in this generation. And it becomes numb to it. Perhaps even stops praying. Perhaps even wondering, you know... What's the battle all about? And the worst of all, just taking truth and letting it fall in the streets. Can you stand with me? Father, I, I ask you that you would please open our eyes today and give us ears to hear what your spirit is trying to say to your church through your word that God, that us, us as your church, that God, we would, we would be anguishing that Father, that there would be tears that we would be weeping in view of how our generation has cast truth to the side. Father, I ask you, Lord, on behalf of this generation, wake up the church and bring it to repentance. And God, wake up this generation as the church shouts the truth in the streets, declares it from the housetops, calls people unashamedly to the gospel of Jesus Christ that is by nature truth and exclusive. Oh God, please come and rescue this generation. Open its eyes and call us back to Jesus. Father, forgive us as your people as we have treated truth so lightly as we have been so afraid to stick our necks out and defend the truth god give us love and wisdom to speak that truth boldly and god rescue this generation please oh god that it would take that which is truly truth and honor it as such call them back to jesus in christ's name i pray